Brian Helgeland, Finest Kind. It's his movie now playing on Paramount Plus and Apple TV. Screenwriter, director, adapted L.A. Confidential and won an Oscar. I think he was in his 30s, Raul, when he yeah, did it. Yeah, he's a, he's a whiz kid. He, well, he was, yeah. He's not such a kid now. But <laughs> None of us an- are. But. <laughs> Another one of his pictures, Mystic River, that had an all-star cast. It was nominated for six Oscars and won two, including Best Actor with Sean Penn and Best Supporting Actor, Tim Robbins. So Brian is a really cool guy. I met him when I was in Austin. And I just have to say this. If you're a screenwriter out there and you haven't been to Austin Film Festival, you need to go. Yeah. Just like the music festival. No, I haven't. Oh, my goodness. It's the place to be for networking. It's just amazing for screenwriters. It's Mm -hmm. really, really cool. And so anyhow, Brian and I covered a lot of ground. And Brian shares with us about his characters, which is really interesting because they are the flaws and how they drive the plot. I was just going to add to that because I haven't gone to the Austin Film Festival, but I've done Don't Knock the Rock in L.A. and Noise Pop in San Francisco. Mm. And I'm just just want to say to listeners out there, you know, if you can't get to Austin, get to a big semi big film festival near you. You know, it doesn't have to be in Austin. It could be in Des Moines or Upper State, well, Maine, too. L- L.A. has several, just and, like San Diego has several film festivals, but L.A. for sure. And we're lucky because we're on the West Coast, so right. I can jaunt up to L.A. or San Francisco. But there are now especially film festivals all over the country. New too. York. And the idea, the industry is changing, so the industry is coming to you. So you don't have to spend too much money flying somewhere else. Find out where there are local things that attract screenwriters and celebrities and executives right yeah you can do digital too remote uh, all the time a lot of these film festivals nowadays have access yeah yeah yeah. absolutely you can you you know what is it buzz in or ping in whatever they call the kids call it right brian shares with us about his characters what their flaws are and how they drive the plot how he develops them and roll you've got some helpful tips on how to create memorable ones right Yeah, and Brian's a character-driven writer, I would say. And we've talked about the difference plot versus character-driven writers. And we're going to talk about archetypal characters. Uh, We've seen these as stock characters, Commedia dell'arte. They're Shakespearean characters. But they basically all come down to 12 archetypes that have gone back thousands of years. And every screenwriter should know them, right? You should have them pinned up somewhere so that you can pull from them because we're talking about sometimes combining them, right? Yeah. The thing is we don't want to stop with them because they become stock comedic melodramatic characters but if we combine them in a number of different ways we can create magic sort of right complex and intriguing characters right what i always call the one plus one equals three principle oh i love that yes definitely so brian helgeland shares how he sizes up executives in meetings keys to great scenes and the critical midpoint Also, he tells us how it took 28 years, 28 years for this script, The Finest Kind, to see the light of day. Amazing stuff. Academy Award winner, screenwriter Brian Helgeland, straight ahead, only on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio on KNSJ, San Diego's only social justice network. Okay, so Brian Helgeland, yes. thank you so much for joining the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. So you are an Oscar winner uh, for the best adapted screenplay uh, for LA Confidential. You know, it's kind of royalty to be in the same room with you. But I heard you won the Razzie Award in the same weekend. Yeah, I did. I, I won the Razzie two days, I think, before the Oscar for the Postman. Um, so I was kind of the only person to walk away from that movie with a, without shrapnel stuck in me. But um, the best thing was, though, that they gave, they gave me the Razzie, and then, but I didn't get one. So about a week or two after I had gotten it, I called the Razzies, and I said, where's my Razzie? And they were kind of shocked. And they said, well, we don't have a Razzie. We just have one that we bring out for the ceremony. <clears throat> and I said, if I, well, if you're going to give me a Razzie, I want the Razzie. And they made one for me. And uh, two, about two or three weeks later, they, I had an office at Warner Brothers at the time. And they came to my office at Warner Brothers and presented me my Razzie. I think very, you're the only one that has ever accepted the Razzie. Yeah, but I have it. And they were kind of shocked, like, oh, you want it? Okay. I'm like, if you're going to give me an award, I want it. So you've been around for a long time, and you've paid your dues. This movie... The Finest Kind is really, it's a gripping kind of thriller. And it starts off to just immerse us in that Boston lifestyle, which is your lifestyle. And New Bedford High School is was your high school, right? Yeah. So can you kind of explain as a writer, we know where you pulled it from, but how did you do that? And why has it taken so long to write this one? Yeah, I wrote it. It was almost one of the first scripts I wrote. It's not the first but the actual, the first draft of Finest Kind I wrote 28 years ago. So, and it's had different incarnations and lots of just being turned down and sitting in a shelf for 10 years here and 12 years there. Oh my God, that's so yeah. sad. <laughs> and it's the only script, I've written a lot of scripts that haven't been made, but all the ones I wrote that were made all got made within two or three years of having the first draft done. And so this is the only one that ever... Why? Do you, I mean, I'm sure you shopped it around Hollywood, right? Yeah, it just didn't click with anybody. Um, and it was always an ensemble. Yeah. So it, at first, when I first wrote it, it was probably the height of, you know, you got to have this guy or that guy to get the movie made. And an ensemble, I don't think, helped it. And subject matter never really seemed to appeal to anybody. And I don't, it just kept slipping through the crap cracks and I, I don't know why but it finally got made but you made it so this is the indie route and I noticed that is it the Taylor Sheridan that helped produce yeah, this yeah oh it's Taylor God. yeah um and he's affiliate 101 studios came on and he's not part of 101 but he works with them a lot um they to, together do all the series that Taylor does and so they um asked Taylor to, came, to come on and lend his name to the whole thing to help us uh, raise, the raise the money and things like that, yeah. So let's talk about the characters. Um, I have uh, the, the character that plays Tom. Uh, right, ben Foster. Ben Foster, yeah. He is so flawed as a character, right? right? Is that some of you in there? Yeah, I... Some of it, his probably loner, the loner part of him mm -hmm. is probably uh, a bit me. 
Um, and like his, his father says, I spent at the end, he says, I spent my whole life trying not to need anybody. Mm-hmm. And don't do that. Would, you know, that's a mistake. So I kind of, that's advice to myself probably. Yeah. But that's about the extent of me and him, I think. But if you grew up in that area and you fished, which comes through somebody who, who you know, when I saw it, it was like whoever wrote this, obviously you, but whoever, they had firsthand experience on a ship like that, right? Yeah. Under, working under a captain and, yeah. and doing that hard work. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather was a commercial fisherman. My father was a commercial fisherman. I have uncles, cousins. And so when I got out of college, undergrad, uh, I had an English degree, like Charlie, the, the the other brother, and I hadn't been fishing, and I had no prospects, so I went fishing. And I fished for a year and a half before I ended up going to film school. Right. It's a very lucrative job these days, right? <laughs> with yeah. the price of fish, right? Yeah, <laughs> it kind of goes in cycles. So when I was actually fishing, we made decent money, but we weren't making... Right after I quit, they started making a lot of money, and I was always I was in film school at the time, and I was like, I, what? I'd hear that I'd get the fish report from my dad, and I'd right. be like, Why am I? Why am I here? Why am I here? Yeah. So let's talk about Charlie. Charlie is the other brother in the film, and he's such a good kid, and you like him immediately. You can't help but like him, right? But what is his flaw? I think he's got a cockiness to him mm-hmm. and a confidence to him that gets them into a lot of trouble. He just thinks things are going to work out the way he expects them to. The, I, the interesting thing about him is he's sort of, if you want to put it in these terms, he's a he's kind of downwardly mobile. He doesn't. He's supposed to go to law school, right. and his dad is a lawyer and not a. He doesn't come from that world, but he's attracted to that world, and he's kind of getting a better sense of himself and who he is by entering that world, and. I was my dad wasn't a lawyer. I, we weren't well to do, so to speak. But I always thought I learned I learned who I was out at this out at sea. Out at sea, and yeah. it came in very handy not too long after when I'd be in meetings with executives and stuff. And I had a it gave me a strange confidence. Like I've done something that none of you guys could ever do in a million years. It, I didn't say that to them. No, I, but have, <laughs> just to have the thought in my head. Like I remember, especially onerous meetings, I'd I'd size everyone up and go, "You'd last about three days. You'd last about a week." Um, so it, it it gave me that um, kind of thing. Yeah, I know a few uh, sea captains from San Diego. Right. Yeah, right. okay, and they are tough. Yeah. So let's talk about how the film it starts off so innocently. Right, you kind of uh, lull us into this fantasy that it. Except yeah. for the fact they're shipped, they lose their ship. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The idea is really to hold the the crime element, so to say, so so to speak, is to hold that off as long as possible, because once that's introduced, then then you're in a crime thriller world. You're not in a in a character drama, really. So the the idea is to get to know those guys and really like them and really see the problem develop and get worse and worse. But to, the, if you introduce the crime element early on, you have very little chance to see them as interacting in their own natural world, so to speak. So the idea is to, get, is to kind of fall in love with them all and see them all before you put that pressure on them. Which actually, it, it, we, I did Man on Fire, the Tony Scott film, and that was the same thing. It was, she gets kidnapped in that movie, but not for an hour. Right. And the first hour is them, basically Denzel and Dakota Fanning, kind of falling in love with each other. Mm-hmm. 
So if she gets if she gets kidnapped too soon, you're not going to feel anything for them because you're not going to have seen them together. And it's the same idea. Hold that off as long as you can. But once you make that turn, it gets really, really scary, yeah. especially when you know the Mr. Weeks comes yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a great character. Yeah. What, what, what also made me think of that a little bit is the old movie, Something Wild, the Jonathan Demme movie, which is a kind of a romantic, it's a little rompy almost. <laughs> and then she's, he's, the two of them, Jeff Daniels and, and her running around and she's dyeing her hair different colors. And then they go to the high school reunion and it's, it's just like, well, this is fun. Where's this going? And it's an hour in, and right. Ray Liotta shows up to the high school reunion, <laughs> and the whole movie just like screeches to a halt and then yeah. roars the other direction, which I really loved. Yeah. yeah. Well, you accomplished that in this movie, definitely, yeah. because I just couldn't see where it was going, and I was like, what? And I kept stopping to look at the time clock, right, to see how you structured right. it, right? right? And I'm like, how? what is he doing right. here, right? Right, right. Tell us about when you're writing this. Did you do revisions on it? and how many revisions. I know you've had it for a long time, but how did you get to the final cut? I wrote the initial draft, and I think it was the very first draft years and years ago was one kid, Charlie, trying to go out fishing, and he ends up on a boat. And I thought I needed more, something more to it. But this is still years ago, and then I decided that he had a brother, Mm -hmm. half-brother, and that dynamic. And so that, it settled into that is the correct way to tell it. But yeah, that was very good because it was a stepbrother. Yeah. Yeah, and they had the different fathers, very, very different fathers, yeah. very different upbringing. Right. So you have the brotherly bond, but you can make two very different worlds that they came from, the two of them, which mm-hmm. I thought was useful. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it got into that, and that felt like the right way to tell it, but I, I didn't change it too much. Every once in a while when I tried to bring it to life again, I'd read it, and I'd find stuff in the dramatic scenes, and I'm like, that doesn't really work, or I, I glossed over that, I didn't write that as well as I could. Mm-hmm. So I was always doing the scenes, like refining the scenes, so they're all pretty tight, and start where they're supposed to, and all those things. Yeah, right. um, but it wasn't till I had cast on board that I did some more messing around with the characters, because I always think if you have really serious about what they're doing actors, they always, they spend more time with that cat, that individual character than I do. So it's always good when they start coming up with ideas and then I'll incorporate those into, but within the scene and yeah. So I, I interviewed another director today and they also kind of changed a little bit once they brought the actors on board because the actor has the grit and the talent to actually move the scene, right? Uh, the two fathers, Tommy Lee Jones is the really crusty one, right? And yeah, how did you get him? Did you send this script to him and say, hey, I would love to, did you write it for him? Or No, I didn't. I just, I just wrote it for the character. Yeah. I didn't know him and then, yeah. I sent it to him and uh, knowing that it wasn't, he's Texan and it doesn't, he might feel out of place. I had that thought in my head and I had a way to solve it. But he called after he had had it for a week, and he said, you know, I, uh, I really like the script, but what's a guy from Texas doing up in Massachusetts? Right, right. And I, but I immediately said, I said, I fished up there, and there were always guys from down south because they were making so much money up there. There were always guys from South Carolina and Florida and Louisiana, and sometimes they'd only be there for the summer because their boats were smaller, but sometimes they'd be on other boats. and. 
He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I said, so you came up to make some money and you met a woman and you fell in love, you had a kid, you never went home, which is, ends up being dialogue for him in the movie. But he said, I'm just not quite getting it. And I said, all right, let me put it this way. And I could tell I was, he was about to say, I'm not interested. And he, I said, it's, you, it's because the price of New England scallops is a lot higher than the price of Gulf Coast shrimp. And there was a long pause, and he went, can we say that in the movie? And I said, yeah, we can say that in the movie. And he goes, all right, I'll do it. Hell yeah, we can say that in the movie. <laughs> and so it's his line, one of his lines in the right, film. Right, right, <clears throat> Yeah, but that came from trying to talk him into it. Oh, so then, so you, that's, I always find that kind of rewriting to be kind of wonderful. Right, yeah. right, because he's got a vest. Now he understands yeah. why he would go up there. Yeah, right? Yeah, and actors are all like, that's my line. <laughs> I'm saying that line. Yeah. <laughs> they have their claim on it, yeah. their thumbprint, yeah. as we say. So I guess the bottom line here is that this is a really great movie. I really enjoyed it. I cried. I laughed. There's some levity, right? Yeah. And that's important to have in a drama, right? Yeah, I think any scene in a movie can be tragic and funny at the same time or absurd and romantic or whatever you want to if a scene is only doing one thing it's not doing what it could do and so the more you the more it's like the old when i was a kid i used to watch the ed sullivan show right and they'd always have a guy who spun plates on the end of sticks yeah. and he held them up and he and he had like one on his head right, right. there'd be like eight of them and then one would start to wobble and he'd go over and get that one going again and I always, especially in an ensemble movie, it's mm-hmm. like if you start naming your characters like uh, Henchman 1, Henchman 2, Henchman 3, it's like don't write them because you're not giving them anything. Mm-hmm. So they're all plates that you got to get spinning and keep right. spinning. And the same with the emotion and everything is, is you, I love when you can get something funny in, in a place where you shouldn't be laughing, you know, yeah. because yeah. It, it's a tension breaker and it's just... It's just confusing in a good way, and that's the way, that's what you got to try to do. All of them, all, the ensemble that you put together, the total Boston, what I picture Boston guys to right. be like, right? <laughs> right? It's so authentic. What's next for you on this? I don't have a company. I don't develop stuff. From, I only just write my own thing, so my eggs are all in the same basket. It's always one egg in, in one basket. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, well, you directed this, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was in beautiful cinematography. Yeah, right? that's great. It's uh, Krilla Forsberg. He did a great job, and he had shot a lot of su- Swedish crime shows where they shoot 12 pages a day, and he makes it look good. So yeah. he, I knew he could do it. Okay, well, is there anything that you want my audience to know about writing in general and from your lived experience, yeah. Brian? Whenever someone asks me, how do you know, how do you do this or how do you get into this, I always have the same answer is that you have to, you give your life to it. Mm. So that's my advice. If you want to write movies, you have to give your life to movies, which uh, sounds fun, but it's not always. So you're serving something bigger than you, and it doesn't reward you necessarily the way you commensurate to the time you put in. But if you're not willing to, um, I guess it's a little bit like wor- worshiping the sun god. And if you were an Aztec, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're at the sun's mercy, but you got to put yourself there to have any hope. Brian Helgeland, thank you so much for being on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. All right, thank you. What makes a memorable character? If your characters are going to be ultimately part of the tribe and part of your 
audience's tribe, they have to sort of ping these certain arc, what we call archetype characteristics. We've probably all heard of Carl Jung. He was the Freudian psychologist who said that all humans have these instinctual, you know, pieces of knowledge of things, that everything isn't new and learned, you know, on on the fly, that we're actually born with what he called archetypes. And then Joseph Campbell, and I really want everybody to look into and read Joseph Campbell. Excellent. He took Carl Jung further and said that these archetypes appear throughout mythology and storytelling. And just a little caution here. There is cultural criticism. You know, this is Joseph Campbell is seen as one of the, you know, the Western canon or the canon of old white men. So just as a caution, there are other mythologists and people who dissect, analyze mythology that differ or differ slightly or in different ways from Campbell. But I like a lot of things. I think he's definitely somebody you want to read. Then there is another person that everybody should know, and that's Sid Fields. He wrote the first screenwriting book, and he lays out the three-act structure. But the idea is this, again, is something we're born with and recognize. So when we recognize a story with three acts or a beginning, middle, and an end, you know, again, that allows us to fit in to, to the tribe. Taking this a little bit further, there are according to many, 12 archetype characters that occur and reoccur throughout uh, the scripts and screenplays we write and watch on TV and movies and all of those series that you're now binge watching. Okay, (laughs) You're Uh, talking to me. I know you are. (laughs) I'm talking to a lot of people out there. Um, So the first idea is that you're going to recognize these. So, you know, there's the hero, the alpha, the one who will jump on the grenade for the team. There is the magician, the outlaw, the villain, the lover, the explorer, the, you know, the adventurer. There is the sage, the all-knowing one, the intellectual. There is the innocent one, the one who isn't quite aware of what's going on around him or her. There is the creator, kind of like the explorer, always pushing the boundaries and trying to make something new. There is the caregiver and the nurse. And I want to just stop on this because we're going to go into this in a minute. But uh, the magic really occurs when you start to combine these. And when I say caregiver, our first instinct is to think of somebody like a Florence Nightingale, the one who always nurses the wounds and takes care of people. But if you remember, a few years ago, there was a, the, it, there was a movie called Misery. Mm, yeah. Yeah, oh where the, the guy Clint. gets trapped in the cabin. Right, right. And, James Caan. Yeah, and, who, and it was a Stephen King oh uh, a, a book originally. It yeah. was an adaptation. It was a horror yeah. story. It was a horror story, <laughs> but it was centered around a character was combined with a ruler character. Oh, my God. So now it wasn't the Florence Nightingale but it was Florence Nightingale meets Machiavelli. You can combine these, you know, even more than two and three at a time. Yeah. Let's see, the everyman, our good old friend Joey from Friends. Not not the smartest, 
And then one last important one is the the trickster, the jester, the class clown, the one who alleviates the situation. We've talked about the need to always have a little bit of comedic relief. You got to have it. And who's going to trigger that? You got to have somebody who likes to tell jokes, you know, right at the, you know, when things get dire and grim, right? You know, in the movie Misery, Kathy Bates is That's the one. Who it was. Yeah. Kathy Bates, she takes care of James Caan. Anyhow, she has a quirky sense to her, a quirky side to her that in the beginning is you find kind of charming almost, right? Yeah. And and when these work, they don't quite fit together, do they? <laughs> you don't quite know which way to go. Kind of like a complex personality. Is this person really good? I like them today because yes. they brought me flowers. But then, you know, tomorrow something's different. And this is like where I said the magic happens. The one plus one equals three. When you take these stock characters, these archetypes, and you put them together in new combinations, the caregiver with the Machiavellian ruler complex. Right. It makes your, your character more intriguing, more complex. And that's where the skill comes in, because there's a certain balance. Yes, there is. Absolutely. And they don't all, like we said, fit together. There's this sort of tension where, do you like this character or hate this character's guts? And that's that's the, the key to a good character, too. You should feel a little torn. Like Dexter. Yeah, we like Dexter, right? Yeah, we love uh, serial killers. I know. We love serial killers on this show. That's why we talk about them all the time. But yes, a lovable serial killer. You can add more than more than two together. Absolutely. Try, Try doing three. As you put these combinations together, you're going to create sort of a fantastical, larger than life person. However, we still have to relate to the normal person who's going to watch our movie or read our screenplay. So the last piece of magic is taking this larger-than-life, fantastical character, this combination of archetypes we've never seen before, put them into a semi-normal setting that, again, the audience can relate to. So it's an extraordinary character in an ordinary situation. There has to be parts that are extraordinary and parts that are very normal, and the magic is threading that needle. Yeah. And we are at final thoughts as we close the studio door here at the San Diego Screenwriters. Hey, great film festival in San Diego going on right now. Raul, it is the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. Super cool. I watched a few of the trailers that they have on their website. It runs until uh, the 10th of February, and it's happening at Balboa Park at MOPA. Okay, right down there by the zoo. Yeah, 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 the Museum of Photographic Art. And if you can't get down there, as we had talked about earlier, you can grab a digital pass, see? So if you can't get to the biggies, if you can't fly to Con, you know, you can get to MOPA at Balboa Park. That's right. But I did see one of their trailers. I watched a couple of them, and this one is called Bad Press. It's how the Muscogee Nation was one of only five to establish a free and independent press, right? Until the tribe's legislative branch closed, tried to close it down, and they repealed the landmark Free Press Act. 
It's muckraking at its best. I mean, this is a great film uh, that's going on right now uh, at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival in Balboa Park. And there's also the big Jewish Film Festival coming. Up. Well, it's it's happening it's right started, now until yes. February 11th. As you know, it's the International Jewish Film Festival. It's up in La Jolla at the... Jewish Community Center, I think that is. So that's what we got going on in San Diego. And you have been, you've got some tips, the final tips from you. Yeah, I just wanted to remind everybody that two books that you need, Joseph Campbell and Sid Fields, they're very inexpensive. And once you've read these two books, then it's really up to you. (laughs) You know, it really is. It has all the knowledge you need to start writing. And then it's kind of like the 2% inspiration 98% perspiration, then it's up to you to put in the perspiration and actually write those screenplays. Right. That's called sweat equity, right? Sweat equity. Don't we know it? Oh, my goodness. I'm still rewriting Saving Jimmy. As as we dig our way out of the San Diego floods, right? Right, We all understand sweat equity. That's right. So thank you again for joining us on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio with Raul Sandel and my co-host. Always here. I'm Gail Stewart, and we'll see you next time uh, on KNSJ San Diego only social justice network. Oh, thank you.